Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a Motivational Lagoon podcast. My name is Glenn Hines. I'm based in Derry, Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Sebastian Kaplan and Winston Salem. Hi, Seb. Hey, Glenn. Good to see you today. Yeah, and you too. We're really looking forward to talking to our guest today, Danny, exploring motivational doing in homelessness. But before we move straight into the conversation, can you just remind people how they can contact us on social media and keep in touch with us? Absolutely. So we have a few ways to reach us and to interact with us. So Facebook, the page is Talking to Change. Twitter is at Change Talking. On Instagram, we have Talking to Change Podcast. And our email address with any suggestions and questions that you might have is podcast at glenhines.com. And of course, we welcome people's feedback. And, and if you feel up to it, you can rate and review us. And we certainly appreciate that. Thank you. So almost the show. Today, we are joined by our good friend and mint colleague, Danny Lang. Hey, Danny. Hey, how are you doing? Glenn, thanks, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Danny. Yeah, thanks for coming along. So we always start the show with the question, tell us a bit about yourself and your journey into motivation. So how did you find MI and how did you get to where you're at? So first of all, my role presently is group and individual counseling with individuals that have a serious mental illness and substance misuse disorder, as well as need to be homeless or at risk of homelessness. And that includes people who are like really marginally housed. So could be in like rooming houses or really dodgy, unsafe housing. You know, I've been doing that for a number of years now, I think almost 20 years in that role. However, in the beginnings of my origins in working in homelessness was really in street outreach and uh, working in drop-ins. And so, you know, I can remember a lot of times being on the street, sitting beside somebody and having these grand conversations and they were good. (laughs) They didn't always go somewhere, right? There was not a lot of focus to them. And so, well, there was some, you know, the engagement was good, but there wasn't always a conversations about change. And it was week to week, you know, we go back and see somebody and while the support was there, it wasn't necessarily when I look retrospectively, there were so many opportunities where these conversations that could have maybe elicited a little bit more change or elicited more opportunities for people to look at their lives in different ways. So it was when I took MI that I was just, you know, it was this whole reflective process and my first day of MI training where I was like, man, and not in a shameful way, but it's just like, wow, those were just missed opportunities and lots of missed opportunities. And so it was like a kind of a mild wake up call to like, okay, there's a whole different way of doing business. And I have this approach, but I also need some other tools in my back pocket to have these conversations with these individuals to, to support them in a better way. It sounds like you recognize the value in the conversations that you had and that you were willing to talk with people in really difficult circumstances and imagine could recognize some value that those conversations had. 
And once you learned about MI, it really opened your eyes to the possibility of how those conversations could be more effective, maybe just more helpful from a change process standpoint. Yeah, it was like, it was learning the difference between sustained talk and change talk. So, you know, I was great at sitting and reflecting and being with that sustained talk. But at the end of the day, that person's still left with everything that's still stuck in their life. And was it helpful? Sure. I had good rapport with these individuals. However, could it have been different or could it have been these different conversations that I would have liked to have had retrospectively? I think that's where, for me, it was this, okay, if I'm going to continue in this career of where I am going to go, and if this is going to be the population that I enjoy and want to work with, okay, how am I going to do it in a way then that is going to, when I sit down with somebody, going to bring me, but I'm also going to use some different strategies and tools to encourage this conversation to go in another way and maybe a way that this individual hasn't talked to somebody before. There was that opportunity. You saw a pathway opening for yourself and that motivation to be an offer to you. And I suppose, what was it that you discovered in MI that added to what it was you were already doing that, that did you find value in? So there's a number of things that I think I've kind of grown with over the years. So one thing, the, definitely the language of change. Somebody's sitting on the street and they may be struggling and they may have whatever substance, a bottle of vodka, whatever. They may be, you know, look like they're, they're struggling or they're hurting. However, there's still change talk there amongst everything when you're sitting with an individual and you're just accepting them as that human being. So there's that kind of that spirit of MI, that acceptance piece, the honoring the autonomy, knowing that there's a partnership, sitting with somebody and just being with that individual where they're at in that moment without me trying to change it without me trying to judge it that it should be this way or that way. Those lessons in MI were just expanded. And then just listening for the language of change amongst the dialogue that we were having naturally, I just started to tune my ear into what was another way, you know, where we could else go in these conversations, which was really helpful. Yeah. I sometimes think of it as like a filter, I guess. And it's like, there's certain things that get sort of, I guess, trapped in the filter, I suppose. And those that the kind of language of change piece that you were describing there, Danny, that there are things that just are more actionable, I guess, on the practitioner's end or something that stands out in a way that just wasn't that apparent or didn't seem as useful conversationally before really learning about and understanding how the language of change works and how you can respond to it in a way that makes for a more helpful conversation. Yeah, definitely. So I always imagine that every time I sit with an individual, the dance is always different. And so it's for me and and that individual I sit with to figure out the dance. And so before MI, I think the the dances were always a little bit of a rustle first. And I was trying to do the salsa and that person's doing the waltz and they never really were close enough to get to make a good match. But, you know, as I developed my MI skills over the years, I find that we're able to figure out the dance in a partnership. The dance comes to each other more quicker than before. And I think that's what allows the conversation then for me to have these conversations with individuals about how life could just slightly be different in that moment. And now we're talking that their mental health is taken care of, like just small incremental things could, could be just shoes. It could be food. It could be just what is it that could make their day a slightly, you know, slightly different. So and you, and you use the, the, the familiar metaphor of the dance. And we've talked a few times in the podcast about the difference between the experience of wrestling with our clients and dancing with our clients. And it sounds like even when there were times when you were in the past, when you were offering a dance, it was almost like there was a sense of almost like a predetermined, this is the dance that we're going to do. And very often clients 
turned up and danced in a slightly different format. It sounds like one of the things you learned from Motivation Living is to negotiate which dance that's going to be done. That your purpose is to dance. What dances performed with your client is a conversation that you have with them and that you enjoy dancing. And what has changed, it's just that flexibility. You brought a flexibility to your willingness to dance whatever form they're willing to do because that's what you're keen to do. You're to create a relationship, to build on the rapport that you already had, as you already mentioned, that you were being helpful. You were offering people company. You were offering people connection. But what MI has offered is, is that alongside of that, there is some opportunity to go in particular directions that will bring about positive change in their lives, whether it's about recognizing what this person needs from me today as a pair of shoes, or they need a referral to another agency, or they need me to take them somewhere. That comes in the conversation. That is the dance. And that the small incremental changes are themselves all inverted commas successes that lead to the other person's well-being being improved, which is ultimately what your goal was. Yeah, said like really beautifully. Thank you. So I love it. A, a subtlety to what was changed and what you were doing. It sounds like motivation. We brought a little difference in the nuance and how you were. And I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned about the change talk. What else was it that helped you make that adaptation? What was it about learning motivation that you saw with time and with your own practice? What was it you were saying? You mentioned the spirit. What else were you seeing? Or how, how was the spirit manifesting? I suppose what I'm trying to do is just explore with you to help the audience understand what was it that changed for Danny Lang when he was introduced to motivation interviewing that made him want to keep doing it. So I'll try to explain this the best that I can. So if you imagine like three circles, focusing, invoking, and planning those processes of MI, I see those kind of interlinked, but surrounding those is engaging. So I'm always engaging with somebody and I just move in and out of focus and evoking and planning all the time. But outside of that, outside of the whole bubble is the spirit of MI. And for me, that is my container. That's my philosophy. That's my approach. That's how I see that individual sitting there. That's my container. So one, it teaches me there's an individual in front of me that says they know too. They, that MI says that's a person there. They have wisdom. They have experience. They know what's best for them in their life. Okay. So I need to do a partnership. Okay. So that takes like all that's 50% of my weight off because I don't only have to do 50%. And then it says, Hey, you got to look at this person with compassion. And it's like, okay, all right. So all I got to do is sit there and understand that this person has some experiences that could be really helpful in their life. And I got to help bring it apart. So I'm going to have some compassion for their wisdom and what they've walked through, knowing that they know best for themselves. Then there's this thing that says acceptance. Oh man. So all I got to do is look at this person and just accept them as a human being. That's all I got to do. Oh, this is even better. So then it it allows me to know that I don't want to watch somebody die on the streets. I don't want to watch them inject and, and have fentanyl overdoses. I don't want to watch that. But those are behaviors that I can let go because I can accept that there's a human being in front of me that ultimately needs unconditional acceptance and love from somebody sitting there and just to sit with their story and hold that story in a way that then can be evocative, which then brings in that last piece of spirit. So that I always see as the container for which keeps me from not stepping on people's toes in the dance too, too much. I mean, of course, I'm going to do it. That's my container to pull me back. And so that I don't have compassion fatigue as a helping professional, 
we all witness and hear so many stories, but that's the thing that allows me to hear the stories, see the things that I see on a daily basis, and not then get deflated and hopeless and fall apart as a, as a helping professional. And that's where I think MI is so strong and powerful because it can work with these marginalized populations and allow people then to come back to life who have skills, who have abilities, who have things in their lives. And it's just, we're the guide, you know, I'm sure those are the terms you use for lack of a better word at the moment. So that's what I think about. Wow, Danny, thank you for that wonderfully rich, energetic impassioned description. I think you just summarized our entire podcast series in like two minutes. So that is just really wonderful. Great visuals in there. And you brought up so many of the important MI components, whether it was the four processes and the spirit. And, you know, one thing that I myself, I'm not, I don't do work with the homeless in the way that you are describing and we'll continue to learn from you with, but I imagine there must be a strong pull when you're with someone whose needs are so, I guess, basic and fundamental, right? I mean, you're talking about needing shoes, right? Or people might have picked up on your accent. So, but you're from Toronto, Canada, right? Yeah. Ottawa, Ottawa, Canada. Ottawa. Sorry. That was probably a big faux pas there, but I'm not aware of that. (laughs) That's all good. (laughs) Uh, Okay. But, you know, I bring that up because people are really cold where you are when they're outside for extended periods of time. So we're talking about really fundamental needs. And I imagine there's this pull or a risk perhaps when you as a professional are working with someone in that way to just rush in with all the answers and here, let me give you this, let me give you that. And I imagine MI in some way has allowed you to just slow the, well, what we call in, in MI the writing reflex, right? to really slow that process down and to make sure that you're aware that this is another person. And yes, their circumstances are such that you're having this conversation with them, but they have wisdom about their life and what their needs are. And they have opinions and autonomy and things like that. And I don't know, I I wonder if, if that's an accurate statement about the sort of risk or that pull that you might have. And if so, how might have you worked through that yourself? It's something that I have to be mindful every day. You know, I know these are terms that we use loosely now, mindfulness, and but this is something I am actively breathing in and breathing out and being aware of when I step into it. So just last week, I was visiting an individual in his place, and he uses a lot of fentanyl, quite high risk for overdose. And I have to take a breath and take a step back and recognize this guy knows way more about overdose prevention than me. So like humble, bud, like I'm humbling myself because I'm going and that's not what he needs right now. He needs me to initially to have the conversation because I think sometimes the forgetfulness is he may not want to see me that day, even though he likes Danny, it doesn't mean he wants to see me that day. And that's the reality of it. So I go in there to see him. That's why I always see the engaging is it's surrounded by the all I move in, you know, Hey dude, how's things are going? What's been happening? I'm here to have a little conversation with you if you're willing. And I would love to hear what's going on in your life right now and see what happens and then listen and wait without trying to force myself. But it is, it's breathing and pulling back and being aware of it because ultimately I'm trying to be as simple as I can, 
in my job and not make it as complicated as I can. And lastly, what I would want to say about that, and I think it's really important, is when people have had so many run-ins with the system, quote, you know, police, hospital, criminal justice, X, Y, G, that have not always gone really helpful. If I come in as a health professional and I'm leading the Calvary, you know, it just brings up people's mistrust of the system. And that's another roadblock and obstacle I got to work around. So if I can go in there more neutral and be willing to have these conversations without the writing reflex, my feeling is then they're more willing to trust themselves to have the conversation with me. And that's what I always encourage people. They, you know, don't trust me. You probably shouldn't because I'm, you know, you've been betrayed by the system many, many, many times and forgive the word betrayal, but that's how people sometimes experience it. So if you can trust yourself enough to talk to me for five minutes, we're golden. That's the things I think about that keep me from pulling back in my writing reflex. That's what I keep telling myself. So what it sounds like is that the thing that you are practicing when you are working with people is if we stay with the metaphor of the dance, it's you're practicing your steps in the dance. And as you were describing, it sounds like the things that you're being conscious of is being mindful, believing in the other, being willing to ask if they want to dance with you today and being curious, keeping that open mind and being open to where that other person is and exploring with them what it is they might need in the time that they have with you and very significantly recognizing their history and experience in the context of the conversation you're about to have and to see where that goes and to use then your skills, your open-ended questions, your affirmations, your reflections and your summaries to navigate in that space. But the effort that you're making is all of that stuff about being aware within yourself and who you're with and believing in the other and and I guess that for many people, that, that will be interesting for them to consider the effort that that takes for us as practitioners to pay attention to ourselves and to recognize our role. It's not to give answers. It's not to fix. It's to, as you described, take that step back and be mindful and curious and understanding. And as, as you were learning to do that, the fact that you kept doing it, you began to see a change in conversations with your service users. And I wonder what evidence you were seeing from your clients that was suggesting this is working. This is why I'm going to keep doing it this way. I think one is, so just direct feedback. Thank you, Danny. That was really helpful. Two, they opened the door. So, you know, or they're willing to talk with me. COVID's made things a little bit more difficult. So engaging people a little bit harder, you know what I mean? In terms of where I, or I have to go to find people. So, but yeah, do they open the door? Are they willing to talk to me? These things are one definite signs. How the conversation goes. Does the conversation have that dance? Does it have a nice rhythm between the two of us? And when I step on their toes or they step on mine, how do we recover? And at the end, what I do always ask, like, you know, given what we just talked about for the last 10 minutes, you know, what do you think you're going to do next? Or how do you think it went? And how do you think this went today between us? Is there anything I could do different? Or, you know, if I stepped on your toes, please let me know. Like, I'm trying to be as transparent and clear as I can as well. And so, People generally, once they get used to you and they know that you can handle the feedback, because sometimes they're afraid, you know, I've noticed clients are afraid sometimes to give us the feedback because they're worried I'm going to close them or shut their file or shame them or blame them. And so I'm trying to at least have that relationship where I can get clear feedback from somebody and they'll let me know when I'm out of line. And I appreciate that. And then I just got to change my behavior. But I think those are things that I'm looking for constantly glenn is how does it feel how's the dance what's the conversation looking like how are we going together and 
yeah, what's their feedback to me? So there's some kind of, I guess, objective indicators. Do they run away when you approach them? Do they open the door? Do they come into your space if they're coming to see you somewhere? So I guess there's some of those things. There's overt expressions of appreciation and thanks and gratitude. You might have your own sense of how the rhythm of the dance is going, but then you bring up this point, this, I don't know if it's a strategy, it doesn't sound like you're doing it quite in such a formal way, but in some ways it is a strategy of asking the other person for feedback. Again, I I come back to the people that you're working with. I mean, how often are they asked, is what I'm doing helpful to you, right? And I imagine, you know, I work a lot with teenagers and I try to ask them, whenever I can, when it feels right. And I imagine how many adults ask teenagers, you know, what could I do better to help you? And, and just the question, of course, embedded within just the entire conversation and the entire relationship. I mean, those questions in and of themselves, you might learn something helpful, you know, like, could you do less of this or more of that? And that's great. But something about just asking the question, I imagine would be really helpful in and of itself in terms of like the implicit messages that it's sending, right? Yeah. And I think MI teaches us so nicely, if we're really striving to have a partnership with somebody, then we are really trying to acknowledge and honor their side of the story too. And when people have had such experiences with the mental health system, where I spend a lot of time in substance misuse field, I don't know what sometimes when I make mistakes, I just don't know. It's not my fault. I just need, need to acknowledge it and move on. Like, that's how I think about it, right? We don't need to dwell on it. If I step on your toes, I'm going to apologize and make amends, but I'm not going to dwell on it. And I want to help people do that as well within their relationships, because sometimes some of the guys I work with, they get stuck in those resentments and anger and holding those things and they, you know, the relationships fall apart. So I can be that model as well. So if they give me critical feedback, even if I don't like it, and whether I don't agree, I can hear it and listen to it. You know, I was pondering this the other day and I was talking to my son about it because he's an avid skateboarder and he's always skating the streets. So they often run into some of the guys on the streets, right? And sometimes the guys, you know, they'll just talk to them and as they're skateboarding and you know, we were talking about even sometimes when somebody's not well and they may be talking to themselves or, you know, whether my son sometimes, is he talking to me or is he talking to himself? I don't know. But there's always kernels of truth within what they're saying. So if I can just be with that individual or listen to it, or even if I don't agree with all of that, with their feedback, there may be a kernel of truth in there that I got to then self-reflect upon to change my practice so that I can be a little bit more diligent in my, you know, Because in a partnership, it asks you to show 50 and me to show 50. And so my 50 then requires me to at least adapt to to the dance. And I think that's what makes it really difficult. You ask me sometimes the challenges. That could be a challenge is that the dance looks really different depending on when people are struggling. So if they're struggling from or they're coming off different drugs or speed or meth or fentanyl or, you know, or they're active with psychosis or just active with depression or anxiety, things can look really difficult. So the dance could look, could change five times within a 10 minute conversation. And that makes a challenge. However, I think being just open and really willing to be with that individual I think that's priceless for me. And I'm struck by how humble what you describe, how you describe how humble you are and what it is you're doing. Because while the topic has been homelessness, it sounds like homelessness is 
a presentation that from what you're saying is surrounded by so many other things that these individuals are experiencing, the circumstances that they have, the coexistence of perhaps drugs and alcohol and potentially mental ill health as well, that the, it's almost like the homelessness is just presentation. Behind it are the issues that you're the experiencing in your relationships with these individuals. And it sounds like what it is you're doing is, again, going back to what you were describing, is, is you're turning up to meet this and this unique individual who has multiple presentations that potentially during the conversation and just how clued in and switched on you have to be to be helpful to those people. And yeah, again, just the effort that that must take for you, Dan. And I'm just wondering, how do you look after yourself doing all of that work? funny because I was just in this presentation this week and I for, uh, forgive me, the, the ladies, the presenter's name is, is skipping me at this moment. But her message was, for us in this field, mental health professionals, it's so imperative to be looking after ourselves, to be saying no to extras or being kind of knowing our limits. And her philosophy behind it, and I've been really thinking about this, this is why it's on my mind, so thank you for asking that. When all this stuff happens, we're the ones that continue to follow people and support them thereafter. So if an event happens, a trauma or whatever, there may be people that go to the initial event or the initial trauma, but it's often this healthcare providers that continue the support thereafter, as this term is what she coined, last responders. And so I really think about this as, oh my gosh, I do got to look after myself in a better way. And last 10 months of COVID has been heavy on helpers in general. And I know I, I, I want to be able to quote her name and I'm sorry, I don't have it on me, but it was just a really, it one that sat with me to think, my gosh, I need to be healthy and well, not only for my family, for my friends, but also for the population I'm serving. Can I get back to my mindfulness practice in the morning? Can I go back to going for my walks and just connecting with nature? Can I give myself permission to say no to picking up a new individual? Can I say no to extra committee work or things that are being asked of me? Because the, you know, I don't know in your parts of the world, but it seems lately where we have so much time, quotes, air quotes, we get offered all these things to do because it's like we have more time to do things, but really I'm as busy as I ever have been. And so how do I then allow myself also to say no? And I think that's a gift that we have to teach ourselves. And I'm not going to say I have that down pat. I just say it's one that I'm working on every day. What are my limits? And making sure I have the priorities of the people I am serving right now, but also my family and the other roles that I have in my life that are important as well. To me, it brought up the analogy of, you know, when back when we used to fly in airplanes, the whole message of put, you know, if you're with a child and you need to, and the masks come down, you put your own mask on first before you put your child's mask on and it kind of counters the reflex of taking care of your child over you. And here it's a, it's an example, not necessarily with your children, but with your clientele and your profession and maybe tapping in a, a bit into your value of being a helper and being as helpful as you can be to the people that you work with. That part of doing your work well is to take care of yourself much like you would in that situation on the airplane. You mentioned something a little while back about the shifts that you make in conversation and how the dances can be so different. No two people are the same, but it sounds like the variety, I suppose, of conversation that you have might be really quite quite significant. 
And like, if you could maybe get into some detail, maybe about what is it that you're listening for? Maybe an example, maybe this guy that you brought up recently, or maybe somebody else where you were in conversation and then you realize, well, this isn't going the way the last time went or the way I thought this was going to go. And like, what were you responding to? How did you do it? And if you could even like do some, here's what I was thinking if that makes sense. Like you were talking about that sort of mindfulness practice in the moment, right? So I don't, I'm just throwing a lot of things out there at you, but just wondering about a few more examples or some kind of detail about how you make those shifts in conversation as you're responding to something that's pretty challenging and maybe surprising. So before I go in with somebody, obviously this has been in the last probably year. I am really, and I'm going to tell you this right now, one of the blessings for me of COVID is I've gotten to take my practice out into the community again. So, well, sometimes people used to come to me or I was doing groups, you know, face-to-face. I'm obviously the virtual now. Um, But right now I can do some virtual therapy stuff, but I've kind of taken, it's almost like walk and talks, I call them, right? Like it's actually been quite exciting to get right out and doing actual real, what I could call, maybe not everybody agrees, but doing really good psychotherapy work with people right in their community, right in their place, or within, you know, the the environment that is where they're at. So I think that's been quite fun. So I'm always thinking as I going into it, I'm trying to set the pace, take a couple minutes, you know, a minute just to breathe. What's where was that individual kind of play it back in my head? Where were we last time? And then just go in as kind of grounded and as open as I can. My mantra, and I didn't kind of let you guys know this. It's just kind of how I view it. When I approach somebody, I recognize because of the complexities and Glenn hit this because the complexity is of the individuals when they're struggling with homelessness or mental illness and substance use, trauma, poverty, will I eat, physical health, emotional health, spiritual health. There's so many complexities. I often think about it and not in black and white, but like I'm dealing with life and death every time in my interventions. And so I know I'm going to be in the gray somewhere, but I I really value it. And that keeps me humble so that when I go in there, I'm just thinking this is one intervention just today. It's, I got one hour with this individual. I got one hour. I'm going to be the best that I can. And after that, it's out of my hands because I don't know what the heck's going to happen because there's just so many variables at play. So I go in and it could be as easy as I'm trying to find a little bit of engagement, but then and and trying to find a focus. So usually, you know, it's hey man, it's uh, <laughs> it's great to see you. It's been a week since we've seen last, and I'm I'm really curious how things are going for you this week and what's been happening, and you know what you want to talk about today, like what's been going on, and you know I'm curious and I'm excited. I think that's important for me as in my approach. I'm curious and excited. And even if they're depressed and miserable, and I'm trying to maintain a bit of hope in in dark times. And so if everything has changed, you know, since last time I got, I met them. So I met up with an individual this week. And from the last time I met where he was calm and collected, you know, and his anger was quite calm. His impulsivity was low. He was doing fairly well and he was able to articulate well, you know, I'm meeting with him and his speech is pressured. He's angry about some things that have happened. He's telling me about seven or eight things at once. They're coming like hundred miles an hour. And I'm trying to, you know, he's doing 80 and I'm doing 50 kilometers, not miles, kilometers. And so, um, and, and I got, it's like, I'm, my mind is thinking, what the heck do I talk about? 
Where do I go with this? What do I do? Am I capable of helping this individual today? Can I do this? Like, what the heck? I just came from another stressful experience with a client. What? Am, how can I be helpful today? And then I kind of just, yeah, and I've said it, I take a breath. And maybe sometimes I even ask the client to take a breath with me. I just say, dude, man, you are moving. And I may see it as, dude, you are moving fast today. Like, wow, man, you're doing 80. And I will use this analogy. I'm wondering, you know, I'm only doing 40 and I'm willing to meet you at 50, 55. If, if you could just come down a little bit for me. And then we kind of it's just the negotiation right there. Sometimes take a couple breaths and I'm like, man, tell me what's going on. I want to hear what's going on for you. And let's just try to find a focus and then l- least let them talk a little bit and kind of use reflective listening, some curious questions, evocative to kind of narrow the topic and get down. I'm even say, listen, man, we got an hour or 45 minutes today. What is it most that you need to tell me? And generally people can do that. They know what they really want to tell me. And it's usually tied into a few other things, but people really want to know. I'm just struck by how moving here and you say others, Danny, that, you know, the kindness, the, the compassion in your desire to reach that person where they're at in a way that allows them to feel your efforts to connect with them. And I, you know, just that recognizing what we as human beings are prepared to do when we see someone else's efforts to reach us, they see you take the step first. And the invitation is, look, I'm hoping you come towards me, but you're coming to, you're willing to go towards them wherever they are. And I guess that again, for individuals who find themselves in the street for whatever reasons, their experience of human beings along their life journey have not necessarily included many people who are willing to be as patient and as kind and as considerate as you sound, as you say what you say, and reach out to them. So I guess for a lot of them, it's quite strange to have a dude walk up to them in the street and be as kind to them as you are and, and how moving that must be for them at some level. You described there on yourself the container and your willingness to let that individual be held by you as they begin to explore themselves and the choices that they have. It's really actually interesting hearing it back because I don't know, how often do I talk about this? Not very often, right? Like this is things that when I'm doing MI training, sure, it comes out. However, from yeah, it's just this is how I think about the about these individuals. And it, yeah, it's nice to talk about it. And if it's helpful for others, yeah, I, I hope it is. You know, I know you, you brought it up and, and the topics is homelessness and marginalized populations or people with mental illness. But for me, it's I try to just approach it as this is another human being and just another human being that needs some talking to. And, and how do we do it? Right. How can I have the conversation? And so I'm trying to approach it similar ways in just recognizing the dance. I had a couple of individuals lately, and I think this is really important when we're practicing MI, because sometimes we think it's MI for everything, right? And do I believe the skills of MI are useful for people in this world? Absolutely. Do I believe that it's always for every case? No. You know, I've had a couple gentlemen lately where I said to them, listen, man, I'm not sure I'm being of help to you right now. Like, I'm not really sure where we're going to go or how helpful I am to you. And what they said to me was, just you being here and being with me in this moment is enough. Okay. So that means all I got to do is just give them presence, right? I just got to give them some spirit and we can have some casual conversation. And if, if change talk 
pops, then we can go with it if they want to. It doesn't mean I have to. I think it's important to stress that because not every conversation I have will be, it's not always like bang, bang, you know, we're, we're banging it out. It's sometimes it's just us being together in each other's presence for as long as that could be two minutes, five minutes, sometimes it's longer, 10, 20, like, yeah, up to an hour, like is generally what I have. So with, with an individual. So yeah, I think that's just that one thing I wanted to highlight. You know, it sounds all rosy, but if somebody, you know, I come up and see somebody and they're not doing well because, you know, they, they're coming off fentanyl or they're still in the middle of their high and, you know, they've mixed it with something else and they're doing some weird dance or something. I'm just going to be there to say, hey, it's Danny. I'm here, man. So glad to see you. I am going to come back. I'm going to be back here again and I'll see you later. You know, some, some message like that. And then, you know, I go along my way. So it's this whole wide range of how we enter and how we, we set it up for later conversations as well, I think is important. It really is hard to overstate the value of the relationship. And it's really at the core of all the fancy jargony stuff that we might talk about with complex reflections and softening sustain talk or whatever it might be. All of that is great, but maybe you're going to have a five-minute conversation with somebody and you're not going to do any of that stuff. And the quality of the relationship and the kind of relationship could be informed perhaps by MI and some of the tenets of the MI spirit perhaps, but just really important to emphasize that. And I guess I would assume that there are some people that come to MI thinking of it or learning of it as this brief intervention, two or three visits, and all of a sudden the person's changed. And there is evidence to support the use of MI as a brief intervention, but humanity is complex enough that not everybody's going to react in the same way. And, and to maybe it's a call for providers of any kind to, when things don't seem to be working in the way that you're expecting them to work, to have something to fall back on that you can trust, which is basic relational skills and making sure that the connection is there and all the other technical jargony strategery that'll come eventually, provided that the connection's there and it's strong. No, absolutely. I think as I've gotten, you know, as I've changed my practice over the years, I think that's really where I've gone to this real, you know, I'm sure you guys have had Steve Rolnick on here and I forget his exact words of saying it, but he, he said something as he's gotten older, he's learned to try not to be so smart. And that always sat with me like, stop being trying to be so smart, Danny. Just don't, don't do that. Like just try to be less smart and just be with the individual. And like it, I, for me, it naturally comes for those people listening to this. It's, I think it's really, really important to understand this is my style and I've just kind of put MI into my style. So whatever your style is, whatever your gifts are at, that you approach clients with or individuals or participants or whatever you call your, the people you help, however you approach them, it's you but then MI fits within you and how you do it. And if this is how I see MI, you know, when I'm telling people this in training, this is how Danny approaches it. This is my model. This is how I think about it. The container, engaging, three circles, we're moving in and out. But how you get there is going to be you and what you bring. Can we all have better patience and empathy? Absolutely. Can we work on our compassion? Absolutely. But at the same time, this is how I figure right now works best for me and for the population I'm working with the people I'm supporting until that, you know, and I keep adapting it. When people give me feedback, I adapt it. The continuous movement, sometimes it's quicker than others. 
Sometimes it's left, sometimes it's right, depending on who you're with and what it is you find yourself doing. And, and what struck me was something you were saying earlier on. I'm not sure if it was Terry Myers or one of the other MI practitioners that where I've heard this, where it's that idea that sometimes someone needs a bloody good listening to. If that's what we did for people was just give them a bloody good listening to. Human beings really respond to that willingness of another person to attend to them and experience the, the connection. And I'm thinking about the conversation we had with Bill Nero. He talked about the old brain, the, the threat that is always that we're always scanning for because of what other people represent to us. That what the research seems to suggest is that when people meet practitioners who act in a way consistent with the spirit of motivation interviewing, their threat experience diminishes and therefore they can engage their own frontal cortex where their own reasoning exists, where they can then start to think about how to solve things for themselves. And again, it sounds like that's all at what you're trying to do when you're meeting people is trying to understand what is their experience of me right now and what can I do to make them feel a little safer and then explore what, if anything, that they need or want from me in the 5, 10, 15, 25 minutes that they have with me. Even just this conversation makes me reflect on my practice right now. You know what I mean? And how going forward on Monday, how I might approach my next person I'm working with. Like, you know what I mean? It's, and I, I appreciate that research. That's actually really nice, Glenn. And I'm, thank you for sharing that, actually, because it, it makes me think about some of the things when you do listen, what they come up with. It's amazing. It's actually really amazing. You know, and it's like, wow, they actually do know exactly what they need. And I did, all I did was just sit there and listen and, and bob my head a little bit, you know, and make a couple of reflections. Sometimes it can be as easy as that, I think, even though that's hard, really. It is the art of listening. In both, like in Bill Miller's book there, I think it's what, Listening Well? Yeah, fantastic read. But the importance of how important it is to just sit with somebody and actually have your attentive ear without a phone without distractions, without looking left or right, without looking behind, you know, like just, you're just being attentive to their needs. I'm thinking about conversations I've had with psychiatry residents who I train at work or maybe a medical student or something. And sometimes you can hear the disappointment in their voice when they say things like, well, I don't know that I really did anything. I just listened to them. And that just, the word just right before the word listen is like, they might as well have just canceled the visit. I, I'm glad when I hear that, because I, I take that as an opportunity to say, actually, maybe that was the most important thing that could have happened. You know, again, you reference Steve Rolnick there, Danny, and I think the word that he uses is clever. I've been greatly influenced by hearing him talk about, you know, don't be so clever myself. And that's got to be hard, you know, because we've put in a lot of effort into learning the stuff that we know right? To try to be helpful. And so well, what are we supposed to do with all that stuff? Just listen? Is that it? After all these years of training and schooling and money and tears and, but yeah, it's like that stuff will be useful, but that's the core of it, I guess, comes back to this, the relational pieces and yes, just listening. And that's really where the crux of the work is. And the other stuff will kind of fit in along the edges, perhaps. I was thinking as you were talking about, it, it was like, when we're just listening, we actually find the focus because then I can quiet my mind down enough to actually hear what the focus could be for the conversation or at least ask or reflect to find, to clarify if this is what's most important. But when I'm not listening, I already have a focus. 
And most of the time, you know, and I'm using it in kind of an absolutes, but most of the time I'm wrong. <laughs> like that's not the focus. You know, it may be a part of a focus, but it's not the focus. And so I think that's been helpful when if I can get there. And ultimately, I'm sure it's come up on this show many times. People just don't want to be told what to do. You know, they just don't want to be told what to do. If you come from a system predominantly that has stolen your autonomy, and I forgive the terms, that's a strong word, that's really impacted your autonomy for years, whether it's mental health system where, you know, you've been told to take meds, forced to take meds, kept in hospital to take meds, picked up by the police who could have roughed you up or... There's a lot of things that being respectful of people's autonomy and listening really just does, like Glenn said, opens up these beautiful opportunities for people just to come up with the ideas themselves versus me like trying to just to do another bad replay of what they've experienced before. That's fair to say. You know, I'm conscious of our time and it sounds like what you're encouraging us to think about and, and many of our guests have brought us to the same place, which is that that we as practitioners are on our own journey of development, that we are in our own process of change to be skillful and to be more effective in our practice. And it sounds like when you were introduced to Motivation, you were already doing a lot of good work. You were already supporting a lot of people that you were meeting. What Motivation Interview offered you was a way of enhancing what it was you did. And in many ways, it sounds like it made your life easier in the sense that you carried less responsibility you had to make less effort to find solutions for other people. The work that it involved was practicing, being mindful, being trustful, being curious, believing in the other. That became the effort for you rather than said, look, you should be doing this. You should stop doing that and coming up with solutions. And it's brought you to a place where you are still on that journey. It has often been said that, that you have been learning from your clients, your service users and the people you come into contact with to fine-tune your listening skills, to fine-tune your empathy, to fine-tune your compassion, because that's what you're endeavoring to do. That's your growth target. And it sounds like you're also learning to do that more and more with yourself in the work that you're doing. So, Danny, we really appreciate that you come along and share with us what you have. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of people out there who will have questions for you. And one of the questions we will ask you at the end is if people want can they contact you? But at this point of the podcast, we traditionally then offer our guests the opportunity to, you know, maybe take a, a side road if you wish and just answer the question, you know, what else is going on for you at the moment? What else is catching your attention that maybe am I related? It may not. What's going on for you that, that you could tell us a bit about? There's been a couple of years now. Um, well, it's been a long time, but a couple of years where I've been really focusing on it. I've been in martial arts pretty much since I was 12, long time. In the last number of years, I've been doing working quite a lot with our with the team. So for sport karate, so you know sparring as well as kata and weapons, and really working with the team. So I've been doing a lot of coaching and you know really kind of being there to help these young athletes develop and you know work through fears and work through their the excitements and learn to manage it, how to be mindful, how to focus in the moment, how to work through that pressure of coming up to a match or coming up to a tournament before you step in the ring. These are things that, uh, that have been really, um, I think they've been a really positive thing in my life and they're quite, it's, it, it inspires me to watch these young athletes working 
at managing difficult tasks. You know, I don't mean this badly, but I don't think often the world teaches them. So martial arts inherently allows these lessons to be taught because that's what we're helping people to work through. And so it just provides this nice venue to teach these young adults and kids skills that can really help them in life. So yeah, and motivation learning viewing just kind of falls right into that naturally and this really strength-based autonomous way of, you know, building up partnership with people and, uh, and coach them in a way that's going to help them move forward. Yeah. And some of our audience might know the kind of recent, it's sort of a new direction in MI is working with athletes and coaches and sports teams. And some of our friends and colleagues, Jeff Brecken in the UK, Steve Rolnick actually also have written some really good work on this topic. Certainly a, an exciting direction that MI is taking and something that you seem to be again, kind of blending in something that has been really important for you since you were, well, literally a child. And now here you are as an adult trying to give back, but also using some of your MI work, which is really wonderful. So Danny, as we approach the end of our conversation today, would you be willing to have people contact you with questions? And if so, how could they reach you? Yep. Just uh, through email would be fine. That'd be great. My email address there is uh, D-K-L-A-N-G, D-K-Lang. 46 at gmail.com. Cool. And are you a Twitter person? Is there a social media that people can follow? I have Instagram. It's, uh, yeah, Danny Lang 613, which is our area code here in Ottawa. So, yeah, Danny Lang 613. Fantastic. I suppose I just wanted to share with you, it was interesting how you were describing your relationship with the martial arts and MIA. It just, Yoda came into my mind and the program when I was young where there was the martial arts master talked to his a student who he called Grasshopper, and I was just wondering, you know, Kato. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just had this image of of uh, of an MI Yoda, you know, um, just supporting people through that way. But thank you, Danny, for uh, your willingness to allow people to contact you, and maybe Seb, if you could just remind people how they can contact us as well. Sure. Again, Facebook is Talking to Change, Instagram is Talking to Change podcast. Twitter is at Change Talking. And any questions, feedback, comments, you can email us at podcast at glenhines.com. So Danny, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really, really interesting. We appreciate it. Guys, thank you. It's a pleasure, man. And uh, yeah, sincerely, thank you so much for having me on, on your show. Kindly appreciated it. Thank you. It's been great. You're brilliant. Thanks, Danny. Take, Take care. Cheers, Seb. All right, Glenn. Good to see you. Until next time. Indeed. Take care, man. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.